It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the podcast where we feature science-adjacent and science-influenced stuff in the world of arts and culture. This week, there's a new film out that is perhaps one of the most science-adjacent cultural moments we could have wished for here at New Scientist, a three-hour Hollywood film about the physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer and the race to build an atomic bomb before Nazi Germany. You've probably heard of it by now. It's called Oppenheimer. J. Robert Oppenheimer was the director of the scientists at New Mexico's top-secret Los Alamos laboratory for two and a half years, leading up to the first successful test of a nuclear weapon in 1945. That test was called the Trinity Test, and it was the proof of concept that then-President Harry S. Truman needed to authorize bombings of the Japanese cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima later that summer. The casualties in Japan, both immediately and in the aftermath, remain difficult to tally, but are estimated at over 100,000, or even closer to 200,000. Meanwhile, New Mexicans living downwind of the Trinity test site reported higher rates of cancers in the years following. After the war, Oppenheimer famously spoke against the widespread use of nuclear weapons. He then lost his security clearances and reputation in the fever of McCarthyism in the 1950s, when the country and U.S. government turned in paranoia against anyone even slightly suspected of communism. It's this aftermath, the tragedy of Oppenheimer's later years, that the film focuses on in detail. At a screening event in New York last weekend, director Christopher Nolan spoke of his hopes that the U.S. government might take more seriously the threat of nuclear weapons and the need for international cooperation. Our relationship with the fear of nuclear weapons ebbs and flows with the geopolitical situation, right. and it shouldn't because the threat is constant. And, and very often when you look back at history, some of the closest moments to nuclear disaster have actually been in times of relative calm geopolitically. So even though the situation in Ukraine kind of puts it more in the forefront mm -hmm. of people's minds, the truth is nuclear weapons are an extraordinarily dangerous thing to have lying around the house. And it is not something we should ever forget about, and it's not something we should take lightly. Shortly before the film's release, I talked to Kai Bird, a journalist and historian who co-authored the 2006 book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, along with his co-author, the late Martin Sherwin. The Pulitzer Prize-winning book was the main source material for Nolan's film. Kai, let's start with the title of your book. You call this American Prometheus, which refers to this Greek myth of a man who stole fire from the gods and then spent the rest of his life punished for it, chained to a rock, having vultures eat out his liver, if I remember right. For people who are not perhaps familiar with the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, how do you sort of condense his life into that same kind of story? Why is he the American Prometheus? Well, it's a very apt title precisely because he, you know, at the end of World War II was hailed as a national hero in America. His image was put on the cover of Time and Life. He became the most celebrated scientist in America. And then 
Nine years later, he's sort of publicly humiliated in this kangaroo court at the height of the McCarthy witch hunts, and his loyalty to the country is questioned, and he's suspected of being a security risk or perhaps even a spy. And indeed, his security clearance is stripped of him, and then the entire transcript of the this very unfair semi-judicial proceeding is leaked to the New York Times. And, you know, he was once a very articulate public intellectual. And after that 1954 trial, he's a public non-entity. He's disinvited from university platforms. He's no longer welcome in Washington to give counsel. He's stripped of his national identity as a scientist and intellectual. So it's a very relevant story to our times, and it helps to, by the way, explain some of our current idiotic politics in America today. I definitely <laughs> want to ask you about that a little bit later. But, you know, let's start at the beginning. Christopher Nolan, you know, the director of the movie, has called him the most important man who ever lived or something along those lines. Um, but when we talk about him, you know, being the lead of the science team during this race to build the bomb, was he truly instrumental to that effort? Or could someone else have gotten us across the finish line faster than the Germans too? You know, like, why was he the guy to get it done? Well, he, he was the most peculiar choice to become scientific director of the secret city in Los Alamos. He was only 38 years old when General Leslie Groves chose him in 1942. And he'd never administered more than a handful of graduate students. You know, there was no reason to pick him, except for the fact that Groves saw in this young man a sort of intensity and an ambition. And unlike all the other scientists he'd been interviewing, Groves saw that this was a man who could speak in plain English and could convey knowledge. You know, he, he was a quantum physicist who actually loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway and, and wrote poetry himself and, and he was a man of literature. So that was sort of a key to his success, both as a scientist and as director of Los Alamos. Can you say more about that? When you're talking about accomplishing a project, I don't necessarily think of literature as making you successful in that very particular way. Well, he typically, you know, could inspire these very eccentric and large-egoed scientists to, to work hard on this project. And his sort of style of management was to come into the, the room and stand at the back of the room and listen and let everyone have their say and talk. And then at exactly the right moment, he would step in and summarize what everyone had been saying and yet do so in a way that pointed the, the path forward to solving whatever particular problem they are trying to address scientifically or otherwise. And he could do so in plain English. You know, off the top of his hat, he could quote from poetry and make analogies that made it clear to people what he was trying to convey. And everyone we interviewed, you know, coming back to your first question, you know, everyone who was at Los Alamos all, all said that if anyone else had been chosen as director, it probably would have taken three or four or five years. He motivated people to work hard, but also to play hard at Los Alamos. 
You know, he was famous for hosting parties and mixing gin martinis, and he emphasized that people should have fun and also work hard. You know, it was quite clear to any physicist in 1942 that the discoveries that had been made about fission made it possible to have a gadget that would have enormous destructive power. And after that, it was an engineering problem, a complicated engineering problem that took enormous resources to pull together. So this was going to happen, if not in two and a half years, it was going to happen very soon thereafter. So he and his team accomplished the bomb in two and a half years, as you said. And then we have the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To what degree could he have had a say in whether that happened or not? You know, did it matter what he felt or whether he thought it was a good idea? Could he have influenced the outcome? Well, he, he felt a mix of emotions. You know, he it was not his decision. That was, you know, the president's decision. It was Harry Truman's decision and the war secretary, Henry Stimson. But, you know, Oppenheimer knew what was going to happen. And he was, in the first instance, he was trying to build this gadget as quickly as possible because he feared that the Germans were going to get it first and fascism would win. But then the fascists in Germany are defeated in the spring of 45. And so then there was actually a discussion that took place in an auditorium in Los Alamos among the scientists. Well, why are we working so hard to build this weapon of mass destruction to be used on the Japanese when we know the Japanese cannot possibly be doing this. And Oppenheimer steps forward after listening to all the arguments and in his typical fashion, he steps forward and he tells the story about how when Niels Bohr first arrived on in Los Alamos on the last day of 1943, he went up to Oppenheimer and said, Robert, I have one question for you. Is it big enough? Is it big enough to end all war? big enough to shock humanity into realizing that we can no longer fight total warfare in this way. And Oppenheimer convinced himself of this argument and that the gadget had to be demonstrated, its power had to be demonstrated in this war, because otherwise the next war was going to be fought by two adversaries, both of whom would be armed by with nuclear weapons, and that would be Armageddon. So it, it's an interesting argument, and yet what happened in fact, was he knew it was going to be used on a whole city. He instructed the bombardiers to drop it in the center of the city, Hiroshima, and at the right altitude to have the most maximum power. And he understood that the victims were going to be poor little people, civilians, women, and children. And that pained him. And when he read the accounts of what happened in Hiroshima after the bomb, we know from letters that his wife Kitty wrote, he plunged into a deep depression, and she feared for his life. And then he spent the rest of his life trying to warn people about the dangers of these weapons. And he called it a weapon of terror, a weapon for aggressors, and even, he said, a weapon that had been used on a virtually already defeated enemy. And he said that because after Hiroshima, he came back to Washington and got briefings about the end of the war, and just within weeks of the Japanese surrender, and he realized that the Japanese were really on the verge of surrendering. Yeah, you raised that point about the motivation being to end all war, right? 
this hope that by having such a horrible weapon, nations would understand they could no longer actually fight each other without destroying the planet. But it also comes with this possibly very small, but they don't necessarily know that immediately, chance that the chain reaction that you start with nuclear fission just never stops and you ignite the atmosphere, set it on fire, and the world right there in the testing phase. Why did Oppenheimer feel that this weapon was worth even that, you know, very small but very frightening risk? Well, he took the risk because he knew he didn't have any other choice. And when I say that, I mean, as a scientist, he understood that human beings are mammals with great curiosity. (laughs) You can't stop science. You cannot stop human beings from figuring out the physical world around us. So he knew in 1939 when fission was discovered, this was a possibility that someone was going to do it. And he feared, as I said, that the German scientists that he had studied with in Germany as a young man were perfectly capable of doing this, and that they they were likely... 18 months ahead in the race to build this weapon. So he felt compelled to do it. And yes, there was a risk. And at one point, there was so much worry that they might set fire to the atmosphere that he got on a train and came back to consult other scientists on the East Coast and came to the conclusion at the end that the chances of that were very, were infinitesimal. So... You know, you already referred to his activism after World War II sort of culminated in these bombings. I guess I'm wondering, you know, is it too simple to say he regretted what he did? You know, was there any part of him that felt like it was worth, you know, like, do you think that he would go back and do do something different, you know, if he had the chance? Or was he really about, well, now we've done sort of the smallest step. We don't need to take any bigger steps, right? He was advocating against the hydrogen bomb. He had this place for sort of tactical weapons. What do you think like his ideal end result would have been? Well, he never apologized for Hiroshima. He never said, I regret that we did this. He again said, as a scientist, I think we had to do it. You couldn't stop it. But he was emphatic that now that we have discovered how to make this weapon of mass destruction, we need to contain it internationalized controls over it. And he had a very specific plan to create an international atomic authority that would have sovereign rights to all things atomic, that would have the right to inspect any factory, any laboratory anywhere in the world, and prohibit the construction of these weapons. You know, he essentially wanted to ban the weapon although he wanted to use the technology to produce energy. He thought that atomic energy was a viable technology. So, you know, he spent the next nine years arguing for international control, and he was against the hydrogen bomb. And he said, you know, we need to put all this back into a box and contain it. And he failed because no one one listened to him. Edward Teller wanted to build the H-bomb, and Harry Truman authorized it. And America, you know, spent billions of dollars to to build thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons, and this was his worst nightmare. You know, in 1945, he predicted that it was cheap, that there were no secrets, 
and that any society, however poor, that wanted this technology could get it. So he was predicting North Korea getting them, and Pakistan, and Israel, and Iran someday. And, you know, he was right. So that's that's the other part of the tragedy. You know, you say in a, a piece you wrote for The New Yorker very recently, part of the real tragedy was also the disgrace, the the trial, the sort of stripping of security credentials, the McCarthyism, you know, that he was the center of, damaged our ability, you, you say this, damaged our ability as a society to debate honestly about scientific theory. That's a pretty strong <laughs> ripple effect, you know, and you, you pull it back to, you know, Anthony Fauci during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why do you think that was such a strong moment in what became you know, a very politicized scientific future. Well, it was, you know, what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954 just sent a message to scientists everywhere that if you get off your narrow lane and you attempt to become a public intellectual and talk about policy and social issues and politics and try to give advice about science to the politicians, you could be tarred and feathered and humiliated and destroyed. And so it's very odd that, you know, after the creation of this, at the dawn of the nuclear age, when we're drenched in science and technology as a society, we don't have as heroes, scientists. And instead, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci in the midst of the pandemic, virtually his integrity and honesty and is standing as a loyal citizen is questioned in a sort of narrow-minded, know-nothing kind of populist, demagogic way. And this reveals that our, you know, at least a great many Americans, and this is true of, of other societies across the globe, have some kind of innate distrust of science, even though we are using computers every day at driving cars, that somehow we're not, as human beings, we have a, a distrust of the technology that we actually rely on. And it's very peculiar. And I, I think part of the fact that we don't have a really civil discourse about such issues in science today, for instance, like on AI, it goes back to what was done to Oppenheimer. Your biography with Martin Sherwin won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006, and now there's this movie coming out, and it seems to be poised to be one of the blockbuster movies of the year. What does that mean to you? You know, someone who wrote all this down in a book almost 20 years ago with a co-author who is unfortunately no longer with us. You know, this movie, could it shape the world, or is this just another way to tell the same story? Well, I'm very sad that Marty Sherwin's no longer with us. You know, he spent 25 years working on this book, and I only spent five years. I came aboard on it in 2000, and it still took us five more years to produce the book. So it was a great collaboration, and yes, the book won a Pulitzer Prize in 2006, and it's sort of astonishing. 18 years later now, it's having a second life and is getting a lot of attention, so I'm very fortunate that Nolan, in particular, as a director, picked up the film option on this book because he is in some way, you know, peculiarly talented and 
well qualified to tackle this big subject. He has an interest in science and science fiction and time and space. So the, the story attracted him when someone handed him the book. And he's written, I think, a brilliant screenplay. And it's grappling with all of these big issues at the dawn of the atomic age, but also McCarthyism and the role of a scientist as a public intellectual. And yet it's also a film that is deeply biographical and you'll come away with a curiosity about this very complex man. So Nolan has taken the book which is, you know, a 700 plus page biography. And he's transformed it artistically into this other medium in a just brilliant fashion and tells much of the whole story. And I'm very grateful that as an historian and biographer, you know, it's also just amazingly historically accurate. He's not making things up. The effort you and Martin Sherwin undertook to sort of clear Dr. Oppenheimer's name over the last, again, almost 20 years. It seems like you started fairly close after your Pulitzer Prize, um, if not earlier. And Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, like just last fall, last winter, December, announced that, I, I feel like this is a technicality in some ways, but the nullification of the revoke of his security credentials, which is not the same as reissuing his security credentials, but it's it's like a an official act of sort of forgiveness that I believe you said goes far beyond like just an apology or a, a declaration, I guess. Um, can you say more about what it, you know, can can these kinds of official acts sort of bring us back to a better place with regards to the politicization of science? Or, or is this just much more about J. Robert Oppenheimer himself? I think it's significant for many reasons. Historically, it means that readers will now be able to read the last chapter and realize that officially speaking, what happened to Oppenheimer in 1954 was wrong and that they violated their own procedures and what they did to him was atrocious. At the same time, I think this is important today because it will again send a message to working scientists, scientists who work in the government bureaucracy that they won't be punished if they espouse unpopular views or speak out about public policy in a way that is unpopular or dissenting. You know, it's important for people in general to understand that science is always a, a, an argument. The scientific method is all about experimentation, about examining the facts again and again and testing them. And that, of course, we have to be able to change our minds based on what we see, the facts. So, you know, coming back to Dr. Anthony Fauci, Fauci had to, in the pandemic, try to, he had to at times look at the facts and come to different conclusions about what public policy, health policy should be. And that scientific mindset should be honored and valued. And I think the Oppenheimer nullification sends a message that people, policymakers in Washington understand that, will honor that. As someone who lived through the Cold War, and many of the actors in the film have noted this connection themselves, what is it like to look at this man who, as you said, was one of the drivers of a technical achievement with a huge social and political aftermath? Do you resent him? 
I mean, I'm sure you can actually look at it with more nuance than that. But what is it like to hold this admiration for him in one hand and also understand all of the consequences that followed? No, I ad- I admire Oppenheimer as a man, and I sympathize with the dilemma he faced. Again, you know, you can't turn away from science. You can't turn away from trying to explore the physical world. And yet, unfortunately, one of the, the results of this is the invention of these weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, we're still trying to live with this, live with the bomb and facing a war in Europe now, the Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin has warned somewhat obliquely about the use of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And I think it's important for us to understand that the father of the atomic bomb, you know, three months after Hiroshima was trying to warn us that these are weapons of terror, they're not weapons of defense, they're weapons for aggressors. And that's how we should think about them. So it's a very important story. And I'm, you know, very, again, gratified that Nolan has found a way to tell the story on the big screen. That was Kai Bird, co-author with Martin Sherwin of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. I'm Christy Taylor. If you liked this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, there's our weekly news podcast and the incredible Dead Planet Society, all dropping right here like clockwork. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.